Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new opportunity to support Her God Speaks. I recently created a space on Substack, which is sort of like a blog, where I can share all sorts of things from theology to my favorite target finds and everything in between. It's called Come On In, because I want that whole sitting at my kitchen table and chatting it up with some lattes in hand vibe. Now you can subscribe for free, but it would be so helpful if you upgraded to the $5 a month paid subscription that gets you access to some exclusive content. For example, I recently published a podcast episode just for paid subscribers about my reasons for transitioning to an Anglican church. I plan to do another episode soon on where I've been and where I'm at on the women in pastoral leadership question. Things I love talking about, but don't necessarily feel safe sharing with the whole world. That's the kind of stuff that paid subscribers are going to get. Now, I do not pay myself for the work I do here. I'm simply seeking to cover ministry costs, which, as the reach of this podcast grows, are growing right along with it. I can only keep doing this as long as the costs are covered. So give it some thought. And click the link in the show notes if you are interested. If that link doesn't work, you can visit aprilsweers.substack. That's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. aprilsweers.substack.com. Thanks in advance for your support. Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Welcome back, friends. Last week, we started a series of Hermeneutics Tuesday episodes that will take us through one of my favorite books, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien. We learned that the most powerful cultural values are those that go without being said. We all bring certain assumptions and presuppositions with us to the reading of the Bible, and those assumptions, which are often really different from the cultural assumptions of the author and original audience of a passage, can cause us to misread the Bible. Because of that, if we want to learn to read the Bible well, we need to learn to read ourselves. And that's basically what this book is about. Now, the first category of presuppositions that Richards and O'Brien highlight in the book are mores. Now, that's spelled M-O-R-E-S, but it's pronounced mores. Mores are social norms that are widely observed within a particular society or culture. They determine what is considered morally acceptable or unacceptable within any given culture. According to Webster's Dictionary, mores are accepted without question. In other words, their views a particular community or a particular generation within a community considers closed to debate. Now, people don't think about them as being closed to debate. They simply don't think of them at all. They go without being said. Now, it's important to note that mores can shift according to geography. For example, I grew up as a conservative evangelical in the South, where one of the mores is being a card-carrying Republican. If you aren't one, it's assumed you are a flaming liberal who supports killing babies. Now, I was a full-grown adult 
before I learned that Christian Democrats even exist. What's fascinating is that if I had grown up in, let's say, New York or Massachusetts, there's a good chance I would hold the complete opposite view and wonder how in the world a true Christian could align themselves with a party that cares so little for social justice. Now, please note, these examples I'm throwing out, I'm not making any judgment about who's right or who's wrong. I'm simply trying to illustrate how mores affect what we deem as biblical or unbiblical, right or wrong, and how we approach the scripture and what we pull from the Bible. Now, mores can also shift over time, changing from one generation to another. For example, if you were to ask the really committed members of the Southern Baptist Church I grew up in what they believe about alcohol, you would find that on the whole, those over, let's say, 50 are really passionate about abstaining. But millennial Southern Baptists and younger are significantly more comfortable with moderate alcohol consumption, even for church leaders. This particular moray related to alcohol also varies from denomination to denomination. The first small group I attended with my new Anglican church was called Pub Patristics. A group of us met in a cigar bar slash cafe and talked about Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Now, most people just ordered coffee, but I sat next to a guy sipping an old-fashioned and puffing a cigar. Talk about a clash of mores, you guys. I sent a picture of me and my cigar-smoking friend to my husband with the caption, who would have ever thought? And about 10, maybe 15 laughing emojis. Here are some quotes from Richards and O'Brien that really highlight why mores can be problematic for our interpretation of the Bible. Christians are tempted to believe that our mores originate from the Bible. We believe it is inappropriate or appropriate to drink alcohol, for example, quote, because the Bible says so. The problem is, what is proper by our standards, even by our Christian standards, is as often projected onto the Bible as it is determined by it. This is because our cultural mores can lead us to emphasize certain passages of scripture and ignore others. All right, here's the second quote. Our hierarchy of what behaviors are better or worse than others is passed down to us culturally and unconsciously. We might assume that our mores are universal and that Christians everywhere have always felt the way we feel about things, but they aren't and they haven't. Third quote, what can be more dangerous is that our mores are a lens through which we view and interpret the world. Because mores are not universal, we may not be aware that these different gut level reactions to certain behaviors can affect the way we read the Bible. Indeed, if they are not made explicit, our cultural mores can lead us to misread the Bible. Now, with all of that in mind, Let's get really practical for a few minutes and work through some real-life examples of how mores affect how we read and interpret scripture. Let's consider our mores related to gender. So as Christians, we place a very high value on the truth that God made us male and female and believe that biological sex matters. 
to us. Gender is not simply a cultural construct that one can decide to change if they so desire. Given the massive gains of transgender ideologies over the last 10 years, I think it's safe to say that most Bible-loving Christians are deeply concerned about preserving our mores related to gender difference, and some have taken this to what might be considered unwarranted extremes. Now, what happens when we bring this more with us to Genesis 1 through 3? Well, in more conservative pockets of the church, it leads to an interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 that affirms gender hierarchy, where men are at the top leading and women are under them playing an important but supporting role. Now, all sorts of evidence for this can be pulled from Genesis 1 through 3. In fact, up until a few years ago, if you had asked me what Genesis 1 through 3 teaches us about men and women, I would have only been able to tell you about all the differences because that is all I had ever been taught. That is the more I inherited from my Christian subculture. Now, I was quite surprised to learn later in life that while gender difference or complementarity is very clear in Genesis 1 through 3, gender hierarchy is not the standout feature of that passage. Rather, the mutuality between the man and the woman is much more prominent in the text. In fact, one of the saddest effects of the fall is the disruption of their oneness, Genesis 3.16. It was also news to me that throughout the history of interpretation, many have believed that male-female hierarchy is not built into creation, but is rather a direct result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Now, a strong case can be made for that, but it's almost impossible to even entertain the idea if a gender difference more of the more extreme variety shapes your reading of the text. Those who bring a gender equality more to their reading of the Bible are going to end up with very different conclusions. Again, let me reiterate, this isn't about who's right and who's wrong. I'm simply giving you examples of how our mores shape our interpretations. Well, let's look at another example. Consider the topic of modesty. Now, for me growing up, modesty was always connected with sexual purity because most Christian communities in the 90s were obsessed with the moray of saving sex for marriage. True love waits, baby. I think I went to like five of those conferences. (laughs) Well, in this context, modesty was about covering up your body so that men would not be tempted to lust after you. I vividly remember my friends and I gossiping about a girl because she had the audacity to wear a spaghetti-strapped shirt to youth group. She was, in our minds, committing the abominable sin of causing her brothers to stumble. Now, you can't see me right now, but I'm shaking my head in disgust over my naivety and legalism at that point in my life. Well, the point I want to make is how that sexual purity more impacted our reading of passages on modesty, like 2 Timothy 2.9 that says women are to dress themselves in modest clothing. Now, if you study that passage in context, seeking to get to the heart of what Paul intended to communicate when he wrote it, it becomes obvious without much digging that Paul's focus was economic modesty, not sexual modesty. In other words, the issue was classism. 
how the clothing and hairstyles of certain women were creating a division between the haves and the have-nots, which runs intensely counter to the gospel. Paul's message is to dress and style yourself more simply as to not draw attention to your wealth. For Paul, modesty was a pride-humility issue, not a lust-purity issue. Now, it is certainly wise to consider sexual modesty, and saving sex for marriage is part of the biblical sexual ethic. But the modesty passages in the New Testament are not about that. We make them about that because of our own personal mores. You know, one thing I find really fascinating relating to the modesty topic is the vast generation gap when it comes to yoga pants. All right, so men who are, I don't know, older than let's say 35, 40, 30, I don't know. Um, but they're, they're, they're highly likely to have an issue with yoga pants. Men in their 50s and 60s might go so far as to say, women who wear them might as well be naked. But younger generations of men, those currently in their teens and 20s, grew up around females who wear yoga pants all the time. So as this particular fashion trend has become more and more normalized, the effect of seeing women in yoga pants for younger generations is vastly different than it is for older. Now, I vividly remember entire blog posts in the early 2000s wielding a whole bunch of Bible verses in order to expose the evils of yoga pants. Because that moray is changing, such rants are harder and harder to find. Well, how about the mores related to cussing? Now, where I come from, folks have a strong anti-cussing moray. In fact, secondhand cussing is often considered just as bad. So words like gosh, shoot, heck, darn, freaking are off limits because, well, Jesus knows what you mean. <laughs> because of this particular moray, I was always taught that the third commandment, which says, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God, was the Bible's big anti-cussing law. In fact, if you were to Google 10 commandments for kids, a high percentage of the images will say no swearing or some variation of that for command number three. Now, there's no time to get into an explanation here, but I can say with a very high level of confidence that the third commandment is not about cussing. Now, there's a lot of good reasons, even biblical reasons, to avoid dropping an F-bomb. But it's a big stretch to say that Exodus 20, verse 7 is one of them. The reason that verse has been interpreted as an anti-cussing verse has nothing to do with its actual meaning. It has everything to do with our cultural mores. Now, the list of examples could go on and on. I could talk about how the moray of American militarism and the right to bear arms can blind us to Jesus's ethic of nonviolence, or how the lack of mores related to racial equality has kept most white evangelicals from seeing that one of the primary themes running through the entire New Testament is ethnic reconciliation, and that there's a special place in the heart of God for the oppressed and the marginalized. When I was in middle school, I had a Sunday school teacher who spent an entire lesson, like a whole hour, on the evils of tattoos. 
Now, the Bible does not teach that. But the moral values that he inherited from his particular Christian subculture led him to cherry pick a verse out of its context and make it a rule for all Christians for all time. I've heard all manner of talks on the importance of women being stay-at-home moms. Bonus points if you homeschool. Again, the Bible does not prohibit women from working outside the home. But if we bring that more to our reading of the Bible, we can easily proof text our way to that conclusion. So I guess the big question is, what do we do? How do we keep our culturally assumed moral values from leading us to misread the Bible? Well, Richards and O'Brien advise that we begin with ourselves. In their words, we have to start paying attention to our instinctive interpretations as we read Bible passages that have to do with values in order to uncover which parts may be connected with cultural mores. In other words, we need to constantly be engaged in self-reflection and self-critique as we read. Now, I can easily critique all kinds of things about myself all day long. But my mores tend to be off limits, mainly because they are so much a part of my identity and thought process that I don't even give them any consideration. They're part of what goes without being said. Because of this, I have to be intentional about identifying my moral assumptions. Now, I can do that by identifying my gut level, unresearched interpretation of a passage. So how would I complete this sentence? Clearly, this passage is saying or not saying, fill in the blank, is right or wrong. Now, after I fill in that blank, I need to take a closer look, do some thinking, and ask the follow-up question. Is that issue really what's being condemned? Or am I adding or removing some elements? All of this, of course, hinges on our ability to admit that we could be wrong which is no small task when it comes to any of our assumptions, particularly our mores. Now, as we are engaging in that careful self-examination and self-critique, we also need to look for clues in the text that identify the mores that the author is trying to convey. Often this shows up in repetitive words or phrases. Ask what the author seems to care more about and know ahead of time that what they care about might not be of any interest to you at all. For example, you probably don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the Sabbath, but the biblical authors cared a lot about it. So if we aren't intentional about seeking to identify their mores, we are at risk of missing the point. Bible dictionaries and good commentaries can be really helpful in this regard. Richards and O'Brien offer a third idea for becoming more aware of our own presuppositions about cultural mores, which is to read the writing of Christians from different cultures and ages. Being confronted with what others take for granted helps us identify what we take for granted. In my experience, this is absolutely true. I'm personally trying to read more books and commentaries written by black Christians and scholars because that's a perspective about which I know next to nothing, but one that is immensely valuable and confronts my own assumptions in the very best ways. 
All right, so we are like totally out of time. So I'm going to end with the last few sentences from the chapter on mores, which is chapter one of the book. Here we go. Of course, our purpose in all this is not simply to know the Bible better. Our ultimate goal should be to live the Christian life more faithfully. We need to be aware of our mores because they can contradict Christian values. In the church I, Randy, grew up in, for example, a deacon wasn't allowed to smoke, but it didn't matter if he were a racist. When we fail to hold our mores up to the penetrating light of scripture, we can become lax and complacent in our discipleship. Allowing ourselves to be chastened by what goes without being said for non-Western brothers and sisters gives us the opportunity to be more Christ-like followers of our Lord. Well, with that, I am going to bid you farewell. I will meet you back here next week for another episode of Hermeneutics Tuesday. Bye, friends. <laughs>